This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. What we have to do is revise and adapt and then revitalize the international system to reflect the changes that have happened at the geopolitical and geoeconomic level. And we have to make the case for continued American engagement on the global scene. What should our strategic approach to Russia be? The relationship with Russia probably is as bad as any time since the Cold War and maybe even worse in some respects. We've got to try to rebuild that relationship. And I think uh, we won't know and won't really be able to start that process until three things happen. The election, the Mueller investigation, and in some sense, resolution of Ukraine. It's going to be very difficult to get the relationship back on track. Steve Hadley served as national security advisor to President George W. Bush in his second term and as deputy national security advisor in his first term. Steve also served as assistant secretary of defense for international security policy for George H.W. Bush and on the National Security Council staff of President Ford. Steve is currently a principal at the strategic consulting firm Rice Hadley Gates, and he is chairman of the board of directors of the U.S. Institute of Peace and vice chair of the board at the Atlantic Council. I recently had a chance to sit down with Steve to discuss the entire range of national security issues facing our nation. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Steve, thank you for joining us today. It is great to have you on the show. I consider you one of the most thoughtful national security experts inside or outside of government. Well, welcome. You're very kind. It's great to be here. Before we jump into the national security threats and challenges facing the country, I'd love to ask you two non-issue specific questions. The first is on the role of intelligence in policymaking. I think you remember that when you were the deputy national security advisor and I was the daily intelligence briefer for President Bush, that you and I shared a car on the way to Camp David one Saturday morning. And we had what I thought was a remarkable conversation about intelligence and um, good intelligence and not so good intelligence and how to make it more useful for a president. 
And I think you know that I believe that that conversation had a real impact on what the CIA was able to provide to President Bush and subsequently to President Obama. So I'd love to get you to talking a little bit about during your eight years in the White House, how you saw intelligence and how you think about it and its importance, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that I think if you read intelligence products, I think the intelligence community prides itself on giving you a judgment. It is the opinion of the intelligence community X, Y, and Z. And that, of course, is very useful. But my experience was that presidents really look beyond those judgments. They're going to make their own judgments. And what they really want to know is what do you know? How do you know it? How credible is it? And what don't you know? And Uh, what are you doing about what you don't know? And what are you doing about what you don't know? And one of the things that we talked about was uh, a device that I think the intelligence community should do more of which is if you have a tough problem, sort of sit down and define all the things you would like to know in order to give a really good judgment and assessment to the president of the United States and then fill in what are the things you know and what are the things you don't know and how do you weight all of those and literally give that to the policymaker so that the policymaker can make an assessment of how much weight to put on the judgment. The other thing that I think is important and what I saw was a very good interaction between the policymaker and the intelligence analysts. And President Bush would pepper the intelligence analysts with questions. I remember. (laughs) but, But one of the things he would always say was, look, I'm not pressing you to change your opinions or change your judgments. I want to know what you know how you know it, and how strong are your views? Because that tells me something about how much weight to put on what I'm hearing from you. And I think that kind of positive interaction between policymakers and intelligence officials is essential. It gives the policymaker an understanding of where the intelligence analyst is coming from, but it gives the intelligence analyst an understanding of what is in the mind of the policymaker, and how do they think about the problem? And I think that can be very, uh, that kind of dynamic interchange can be crucial to both doing good intelligence and good intelligence support to the policymaker. I want to say, if I can, two things to, to close off the sure. discussions. First of all, on the intelligence community, I've now been reading intelligence, dealing with intelligence community for, you know, more decades than I want to admit. And I want to just pay tribute to how much more professional and effective and useful the intelligence community is now than it was 20, 30 years ago. It is more focused on serving the policymaker. It is much more prompt, uh, real time. It is focused on giving the policymaker the best the intelligence community has to offer when the policy community needs it. And through the experience we've had, things like the WMD in Iraq that you talk about and other things, the community has really had the capacity to look critically at how it does its work and improve its methodologies. Okay, so let's focus in on national security threats and challenges facing the country. And let me, Steve, start with the erosion of the so-called liberal international order. 
Um, and I know you've thought a lot about this and written about it. And let me ask a couple of questions. Uh, one is, can you define what that means for our listeners and why it's so important? And can you talk about the degree to which it is being undermined and why? So the international order, what I like to call the international system, is what really began after World War II. And it began as a set of alliance relationships, um, NATO alliance, alliance between the United States and Japan, for example, South Korea, a set of alliance relations that was to bring stability and to ensure we did not return to global conflict. In addition, there were a series of institutions which were established, so-called Bretton Woods institutions, the World Bank to help develop and help countries rebuild after war, the International Monetary Fund, for example, to help regulate economic relations and to ensure that there is, was not a return to economic collapse, the United Nations, which became a form for trying to resolve issues and avoid conflict. That's really where we started out. It was a system really of which the United States was, along with its friends and allies, was the moving party. And it heavily reflected our views about freedom, democracy, respect for the rule of law, market economics. And over time, it began to be overlaid with a series of other arrangements of all sorts, sometimes treaties, sometimes agreements, sometimes simply practical arrangements. They began to deal with a whole series of issues, whether they were environmental, whether they were about proliferation, whether they were about terrorism, a whole series of relationships and practices that not only began to knit together governments, but began to actually be constructed by subnational states and provinces, and even a set of arrangements that began to involve the private sector, various conventions about in the areas of environment or health or the like. And so what has become is kind of a network or a dense web of rules and practices and relationships that orders how we do business at the governmental and increasingly in the private level. Again, United States and its friends and allies, the movers of that system, the maintainers and defenders of that system, and it worked very well for us. And, and I think at the macro level, it provided the world an unprecedented period of stability and prosperity for 70 years. We did not return to a hot world war. And in that period of time, societies and countries have been rebuilt and hundreds of millions of people have come out of poverty. But two things happened in this period of time. One, the world changed. And there were developments at the geopolitical and geoeconomic level that began to call into question that framework, the emergence of China, the emergence of India, the rise of of the rest, if you will, the developing world that became increasingly Which developed. Which was actually part of the success of Which what we put in place. part of the success. And in some sense, the international system was slow to adapt to the success of its own efforts in bringing up the rest of the world politically and economically. So that's the first thing that happened. The second thing has happened is that the prosperity and peace that at the macro level 
was produced by the international system was not universal. And at the micro level, it left many people behind. And many times the international system is viewed as having facilitated globalization. And as we know, globalization had winners and it had some losers, some people who became victimized by globalization rather than empowered and enriched by globalization. And it resulted, I think, over time, and we saw it really beginning to emerge in 2010 in the United States. We've certainly seen it in Europe of a group of people who felt that they were victimized by globalization, threatened by immigration, abandoned by their politicians, and betrayed by the elites, so-called, who actually were the beneficiaries and the supporters of that international order. And we were slow to recognize that. And the election of President Trump is really when the that group emerged in a way on the international scene in a way that could not be denied and could not be ignored. Basically and said, we're here. Don't forget about us. Don't. And some people have said that the 2016 election is really the have you heard us yet election. And that's what happened in the United States. It happened in Europe in terms of the Brexit vote by which the United Kingdom narrowly voted to leave the, uh, the European Union and the rise of rightist parties in Europe questioning the European Union and questioning actually the political arrangements in their own countries. So the first cause that you talked about, right, just the way the, way the world has evolved would suggest that we can never go back to the original order, right? It suggests that even the best case outcome for us would be different than it was in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. The second would suggest, boy, there are some things that we have to fix, right? So how do you think about what the international system 2.0 would look like in a perfect world and what do we have to do to get there? And if we don't, what do we end up with? That's so a lot. at the first level, what we have to do is revise and adapt and then revitalize the international system to reflect the changes that have happened at the geopolitical and geoeconomic level. That is something that I think you don't do by some, you know, huge negotiation. I think it's something that you do by taking individual institutions. I think all these institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, all the rest, need to do a self-examination and ask themselves the question, are we still relevant? Have we adapted to reflect the new situation? So we have to adapt and, and update, if you will, existing institutions. We have to give these new emerging countries a seat at the table and an influence proportional to their weight so that they see their future within a revised and adapted international system rather than going off and trying to develop an alternative. That's what we need to do at the geopolitical level, and the United States needs to, to uh, lead that effort. Domestically, the United States will not be able to play that role if it does not fix its problems at home. Um, Those two things are, are linked in a very significant way they, in your view. They are linked. We have got to address the grievances of those people who feel left behind and victimized by that international system and globalization. We sort of took the international system that we invented and supported for granted 
and didn't really explain it to the American people. It's not a communication problem. It's a substantive problem. We've got to fix and address those grievances that people had. And then we have to engage with them and basically make the case that a revised and adapted international system is good for America, both internationally and here at home. And we have to make the case for continued American engagement on the global scene in the face of a many people who say, look, we've been leading the world for too long. It's cost us too much money, too much treasure, too many lives. We haven't been good, that good at it. It's time for us to come home, focus at home, and let someone else carry the load. It's an understandable response. I think in the end of the day, it will make America less safe and less prosperous because the truth is there is no country in a position to lead the international effort that I'm talking about other than the United States. Europe is too focused on its internal problems. And quite frankly, nobody really trusts the Chinese and the Russians to take that view. So the the Chinese are an absolutely key player here, particularly with regard to the first piece and how the system has evolved and how we need to give the, the emerging powers, China being the most important, right, a bigger say in the world. What should our strategy be vis-a-vis China for them to play that role in a responsible way and not an irresponsible way of which plenty of what they do today fits into that category? So one, we have to give them a seat at the table and we have to let them be able to offer new institutions or adapted institutions and embrace them as part of the international system. So as you know, the Chinese some years ago came up with a proposal for an Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. The United States opposed it, said it was just a tool for Chinese hegemony and it was going to be not transparent uh, and it was not going to meet professional standards and was not really going to benefit the recipients. In fact, the AIIB as it's now called, is a very professional organization. It has many countries who are members. It has a very professionalized staff. We should be willing to welcome those institutions. At the same time... By the way, none of our our allies joined us in that opposition. Not a single one of them. On the other hand, we do have to insist on some standards. And it's not enough just for the United States to do it. It is something that we and all of our, our friends and allies need to approach together. In some sense, if we are all embracing China and telling China the same thing in terms of how it needs to integrate into the international system, it's going to constrain their ability to move. And it's got to be about transparency. It's got to be about professional standards. It's got to be about playing by the rules. It's got to be about making sure that Their activities, for example, on the One Belt, One Road, which is a huge investment, infrastructure investment program that China is is, uh, pursuing with some 69 countries, actually is going to benefit those countries that are recipients and be supportive when it does and be making the point and resisting when it doesn't. So it seems to me, Steve, that, that we've gotten this just backwards your point about opposing the the infrastructure bank in East Asia is a good example of not supporting them when they're actually playing by the rules. And then in my view, not pushing back hard enough on their militarization 
of the contested islands in the South China Sea being an example of not putting pressure on them when they're not doing the right thing. So are you at the end of the day hopeful here that we're going to get this right with Beijing or are you a little worried about it? I'm a little worried about it. I think, you know, there is a view in Washington now that China has a grand strategy of re- of dominating its region and ultimately replacing the United States at the top of the global food chain. I don't know whether that's true or not. Nobody does, really. And nobody knows how successful China will be even if it has that as its objective. So my sense is that in a situation of uncertainty like that, what you need to do is try to engage China in a way that maximize the chances that it will work within a revised and, and revitalized international system that serves Chinese interests but continues to serve Americans' interests as well. But at the same time, be positioning ourselves. So if China, if that effort fails, we are able to defend the American people and our prosperity and economic interests even in a much more conflictual and competitive world. I, I don't know how it, whether it will work. I think the thing that's different than at the end of World War II or at the end of the Cold War was that people that uh, in those two periods nominally would say that they supported human rights, rule of law, democracy, and free markets. That's not what you hear out of China today. That's not what you hear out of Russia today. They say not only do they have a different political system, which is state-oriented, but they now, for example, the Chinese say they have a different economic system, that, that socialism with Chinese characteristics is not a market economy and never will be. So one of the tricks in this is how do we have an international system that serves our interest and serves the interest of the global community the way for 70 years the prior international system did? How do we do that in a way that includes China but also doesn't betray our principles that in the end of the day, the kind of world that is most congenial for our interests and ensures, most ensures the peace, security, and prosperity of the world is one that is based on rule of law, human rights, democracy, and free markets. And I think that is going to be the trick. And what we may end up is on various issue areas getting as much agreement as we can internationally, including with the Chinese, but retaining our ability as a subset of the international community to work with right-thinking friends and allies to make the case and stand up for those principles of democracy, human rights, rule of law, and free market economy. Russia, their approach is different, right? China's approach is to gain strength. Russia's approach is to undermine us and that order, that that uh, international system you talked about, what should our strategic approach to Russia be? Russia is very tough. The relationship with Russia probably is as bad as any time since the Cold War and maybe even worse in some respects. At the end of the Cold War of 1989-1990 when Soviet Union broke apart, gave, Russia gave up communism and began to move in the direction of a market economy and uh, more freedom for its people. We were all very hopeful that Russia would actually find its place in the international system. It is increasingly... It seemed to be trending that way for 
short period of time. It did. And then somewhere in the middle uh, of the first decade of the 21st century, it began to move in the other direction, increasingly authoritarian, uh, increasingly trying to impose its will on its neighbors. And the relationships that at all levels of government between Russia and the United States that we build up in the wake of the, uh, in the Cold War have been largely stopped. There is very little interaction between the United States and Russia on any level other than at the presidential level and in terms of forces deconflicting in operations in Syria. That's a dangerous situation, and President Putin has really become almost a spoiler on every international issue, defining his interests as being adverse to that of the United States. What to do? We've got to try to rebuild that relationship. We've had for 40, 50 years a formula for dealing with competitive or even adversarial powers, and it is to cooperate constructively in areas where we have common interests and can agree, stand up for our principles in areas where we disagree, and try to manage those disagreements so that we don't fall into confrontation or conflict. That's been the framework we've had with Russia. I would say we are out of that framework right now. And the question is, can we get Russia back into that framework? And I think uh, we won't know and won't really be able to start that process until three things happen. One, we get through our election in November, and it is clear that the Russians have not tried to manipulate that election in 2018 the way they did in 2016. Secondly, that the issue of Russian intervention in our election in 2016 gets through the Mueller investigation and the results of his investigation are known. And that whole issue gets through our political process and and we can close the door. And then finally, I think we need to begin to make progress on one issue in particular, and that is Ukraine, which is the reason for the sanctions on Russia that has so accelerated the deterioration in relationship. And that means finding a way where uh, Russia will allow Ukraine to reassert sovereignty over the Donbass region in uh, eastern Ukraine that the Russians and their their surrogates really occupy. Uh, And agree that we'll continue to fight over Crimea, which Russia has annexed and which the United States cannot and should not acknowledge. I think until those three things happen, it's going to be very difficult to get the relationship back on track. But when that moment comes to try, there are some things where we can cooperate with Russia on counterterrorism, on arms control, nuclear arms control, do things like extending the New START treaty, which established limits on the offensive nuclear weapons on both sides. There are a number of areas where it is in our interest very much to cooperate, the area of nonproliferation as well. Uh, But I think we won't get that cooperation started until these things uh, I've talked about, the election, the Mueller investigation, and in some sense, resolution of Ukraine become realities. What about Iran? Iran is uh, a a tough issue, and, and I think that what the administration is trying to do is to use the return of sanctions and pressure on Iran to get Iran to return to some form of arrangement, which not only 
improve some of the problems that President Trump and a lot of Republicans had with the Iran nuclear agreement, which deals with Iran's uh, disruptive behavior in the region, in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere, and also deals with Iran's support for terrorism. The Obama administration came up with a nuclear agreement. This is the agreement that President Trump has withdrawn from. Did you support that agreement or were you opposed to it? I was silent on that agreement. I thought it was um, it was an agreement when our our government negotiates something. It is um, it has a presumption that we ought to stand behind it. But I felt that it had two principal problems. One, as you know, a lot of the limitations were time bound and were not indefinite, and therefore you could not ensure that they those limits would be present in perpetuity to prevent Iran to get a nuclear weapon. And secondly, there were some questions about some of the inspection provisions and a little uncertainty about what the exact status of the Iranian efforts to date had been. For those reasons, I did not support the agreement. I think the issue when President Trump pulled out of it was one of whether American interests were advanced by staying in the agreement or getting out of it. I think that President Trump decided that he could advance American interests by getting out of that agreement reestablishing sanctions and trying to get the international community to follow our lead in order to get the Iranians to understand that they needed to come back to the international community, cure some of the problems with the nuclear agreement, but also address its behavior in the region and its support for terror, which um, really were not addressed at the time of the nuclear agreement. I think the Trump administration's right about that. And we all have an interest in trying to hope that they can succeed. The trick is going to be how many um, how many other countries come along with us on the sanctions. It is, and it's been very interesting to see how the European countries who've made, who were part of that process with us, the EU and Germany and France and the UK, are all trying to preserve the nuclear agreement with Iran and have said that they will protect their companies from American sanctions. Uh, In fact, it's difficult for them to do. And what's been fascinating is the number of European companies, some of the biggest European companies all said that, look, if it's a choice between dealing with the United States or dealing with Iran, we're going to deal with the United States and have been pulling out of their activities at Iran. That is useful to the administration because it puts concrete pressure on the Iranians in a way that hopefully will cause them to uh, reconsider and try to address the uh, the concerns that have been raised by the Trump administration. Uh, North Korea. You know, it's a very interesting example of how President Trump has reset the table. A lot of people were very critical of some bellicose rhetoric, threatening rhetoric, rhetoric he used with North Korea. Uh, some people said the risk of war was going up. I thought... Ill-advisedly, I thought that was not the case. And and now it seems pretty clear that Trump's rhetoric both got the attention of Kim Jong-un in North Korea, that he need to pay attention. And there was a limit to the patience of the American president with the North Korea's nuclear weapon program and its ballistic missile program for developing the means both to deliver those, those, deliver those nuclear weapons mm-hmm. to our neighbors and even to the United States that uh, there were limits to what he could do. And it also got China's attention that this issue needed to be resolved 
one way or another. And if it was not resolved peacefully, then President Trump might be willing to take military action. So it actually set up the situation where Kim Jong-un offered to uh, meet with the president and has said he will denuclearize the, the peninsula. And then he offered to meet with the president and everyone said the president shouldn't meet with him and the president until it had been prepared by lower-level officials and the president decided he would go ahead and meet with Kim Jong-un. I think he was right to do it. We've had two efforts in the traditional way to resolve this issue with North Korea. It resulted in a an agreement to denuclearize the uh, North Korea in 1994 under the uh, Clinton administration, 2005 under the George W. Bush administration. We couldn't keep North Korea in either one of them. I think this approach is probably a, a worthy of a try because what Kim Jong-un really needs to do is to make a strategic decision that the past where he has prioritized military over civilian well-being, has prioritized his nuclear program, has really been isolated from the international community, is dependent on China, is not a good path for the future, that instead he should open himself to the world he should prioritize his economy. He should get uh, improved diplomatic relations and economic assistance to give his people a reasonable life. And the key to that hopeful vision is giving up his nuclear program and his ICBM program. Which means as we go through this process of negotiating, we can't let the sanctions start slipping away, right? We can't let holes get in the sanctions. We can't let the sanctions keep get start slipping away. We have to keep China engaged. But quite frankly, we need to keep President Trump engaged because if Kim Jong-un is going to make that strategic decision and that strategic shift, it's going to have to be President Trump who convinces him to do it. And that's what that video that was shown uh, that was criticized by many. It basically was a five-minute video that demonstrated, as I understand it, demonstrated those two alternatives and made the case that Kim Jong-un should take the second more hopeful course of action. It is President Trump's opportunity to try to convince Kim Jong-un, President of North Korea, to make that decision. And are you hopeful on this? Uh, I am hopeful, but you know, having dealt with the North Koreans, to be very hopeful is to is to go with hope over experience because our experience is not so good on this. Yeah. Steve, you've been very generous with your time. Um, let me just ask one more question, which is, I am very fond of President Bush, as are you. How would you characterize his legacy in international affairs? Well, the first thing I think you'd have to say is that he kept us safe from terrorist attack. As you remember, after 9-11, this intelligence community told the president that the attack on 9-11 would be the first of a series of mass casualty attacks on the United States, and some of them would involve weapons of mass destruction. And the very next month in October 2001, envelopes full of anthrax powder showed up on Capitol Hill and actually killed a couple security guards up there. And nobody knew where they came from. So I think his, his biggest success was to lead the country, take the fight to the terrorists abroad, harden America here at home, and prevented those kinds of follow-on terrorist attacks. He kept the country safe. And that system he built to do that, 
to keep the pressure on them overseas and to defend ourselves here at home still exists to this very day. To this very day. Secondly, he said we needed to have, there was going to be an ideological war on terror, that we had to have an alternative to the vision of the terrorists, which was to have very totalitarian or authoritarian political systems that imposed on populations a very extreme view and version of Sharia law. And he said we need to counter that vision with a more hopeful vision of freedom and a democracy where people are trusted and empowered to build their own futures, be able to provide for their families, their security, their prosperity, and live in freedom. And he promoted that vision and I think made a lot of progress, particularly in his first term. I think that will be an enduring part of his legacy and his confidence in the end of the day, despite the current trend towards authoritarianism that we see in the world today, in the end of the day, people want control of their own futures and control of their own lives. And I think we need to, to maintain his confidence in our own principles and our own values, democracy, free markets, human rights, rule of law, that in the end of the day, they will prevail. And thirdly, he did a lot of things that were very positive that people almost uh, are unaware of. You know, the HIV initiative in PEPFAR initiative in Africa, which provided a formula for dealing with the HIV epidemic that saved somewhere between 11 and 15 million lives. The initiative he had on malaria, on neglected tropical diseases, a new model for economic development embodied in the Millennium Challenge Account program, which partnered with local countries and gave them incentives to provide better governance for their own people uh, and provide transparent uh, and brighter economic prospects for their people. I think in the end of the day, when the history is written, when we get out of the the politics of the moment, his legacy is going to be a very strong one indeed. Thank you, Steve, very much for being with us. Delighted to be here. That was Steve Hadley. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad free on Wondery Plus.